1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, Health and Agriculture. And I am delighted today to focus on that latter word agriculture and how that really affects our planet's health, our environment, and of course our food and public health. And we will be talking today with Greg Judy. Greg is a rancher. He is located in Rucker, Missouri. And what makes him so unique is he does something called mob grazing. And we're going to learn all about that. Welcome, Greg. It's
2: a pleasure to be here today, Melinda.
1: Okay, Greg, I need to know how you discovered this concept of mob grazing or something you call holistic planned grazing.
2: I actually learned the process from a South African rancher that was over here in the United States giving a talk on being able to ranch environmentally friendly. In other words, not using a lot of these chemicals and pesticides And just using good grazing management with livestock to turn the land around and make it a very healthy, productive ecosystem, how we can heal the water and basically clean up the water, clean up the the countryside, just using livestock with no machinery or fossil fuel required. And so that really piqued my interest Mm -hmm. of how to, you know, basically run a ranch without all this stuff.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well... What were you doing prior to this? Were you doing a more conventional system?
2: Yes. uh, We had a grazing system that was basically what they call rotational grazing. In other words, we were rotating the animals around the farm, and we'd move them every four to five days to a fresh pasture, and we were getting by that way. But the thing that was missing, the missing ingredient was we were grazing the plants before they were recovered. In other words, we were rotating around the farm, concentrated on trying to keep the plants in a short, almost like your lawn, like Mm
0: -hmm. a person mows
2: his lawn every two weeks. We were trying to keep our plants in a short, vegetative state. That's what we were taught to do. And with holistic plan grazing, what we're trying to do, in other words, some people call it mob grazing, is we've got our density up. In other words, we have the same number of cows, initially we did, And we put them in a tighter area. So instead of letting them have the whole playground, Uh we just gave them a section. Let's say, you know, like an eighth or a sixteenth of the farm. And so we increased the stock and density. What that did is it increased the kinetic energy of the hose on the land. And it woke up the microbes. See, people call ourselves, you know, grass farmers or or ranchers. We should really call ourselves microbe farmers. (laughs) Because that's where it starts at. It starts in the soil. And we need to have healthy soil. We need to get back to having nutrient-dense food for microbial active soil.
0: Hmm. And that's
2: what we're doing. Our, our soil has absolutely exploded with life. Mm-hmm.
1: From a nutritional standpoint, of course, I'm a big fan of grass-fed meat. And I've seen the differences in the fatty acid composition So we get these dietary guidelines, right, and they say cut back on saturated fat and cut back on red meat, but really we need to be separating out red meat or beef from a grass-fed animal versus red meat from a feedlot-fed animal because I believe they're two different animals. Would you agree? I
2: would agree 100%. The beef from a grass-fed animal is being produced from green blades of grass that has got a beta carotene in it, it's heavy in energy from the sunlight, it doesn't have, and see, the animal's gut, the animal's gut, or the rumen, we call it, has a pH of 7, as long as they're eating forage or grasses. The very minute you put them in a feedlot and start cranking them full of corn, you turn that rumen into an acidic environment. Guess where E. coli comes from? There's never been a registered state of E. coli in a grass-fed animal. It can't happen because
1: the pH is 7. That's a big difference. Yes, it is. Well, you know, Greg, I had an opportunity to see some feedlot operations in eastern Kansas a couple years ago. And I've also seen cows certainly grazing in your situation and on other grass-fed operations. And it's tremendously different. So, for example, I learned actually just recently at the American Dietetic Association that cattle that are raised in feedlots get respiratory infections from dust. And then they require, of course, antibiotics, which isn't good for human antibiotics, and it breeds antibiotic resistance. Whereas the cattle that are raised on grass, they don't get those respiratory infections. That's correct. Did, Did you experience that firsthand?
2: Yes. Our cattle, we don't, Melinda, we don't get our cattle up and doctor them because they don't get sick. Yeah. An animal with a good functioning immune system that is not forced to stand and poop all day and lay in poop and eat and defecate and then have to spend your whole time in that environment crowded up with your buddies, you're all crunched together, that would make anybody stressful.
0: hmm
2: And our animals are rotated on clean grass every single day. So when they come onto a pasture in the morning time, it's clean. It's been cleaned off by sunlight and rain and time.
0: Mm-hmm. Our animals
2: have a smile on their face when they go into the paddock every
1: morning. <laughs> I've been. I recently visited the farm of a mutual friend, Mary Jo and Laverne Forbord, and they actually have a grazing operation in Starbuck, Minnesota. And people will think, well, you know, how can you possibly graze cattle in Minnesota? But Mary Jo tells me that they will actually graze through the snow. They'll be still eating grass. And those cattle were fat. They were fat, happy, and healthy.
2: Yes. If we get a real deep snow here, it's got to get up to 20 inches deep before we have to put out hay. Wow. But our cattle, they'll push right through the snow and then eat the green grass. And, you know, cattle were designed to graze. They're not designed to stand around a feed trough Yeah. and feed corn. Yeah. And to me, that's just been the detriment of the beef industry. You know, there's more people going out of the beef industry today they are just quitting because they can't make any money at it.
0: Mm-hmm. They scream
2: and bellyache because of the inputs are too high.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We've been sold the bill of goods that we've got to feed these cattle this grain we can't make a living with them.
1: How do you market your beef? So you don't send your cattle off, right? You've got them from start to finish?
2: That's correct. From the time they are born on our farm, they leave our farm when they're finished on grass. In other words, our cattle from baby calves all the way up to the time they're ready to be processed in an arbiter, they live on our farm. We have a closed herd. We don't bring anything else into our herd.
1: You
0: must- that way
2: we're not introducing any chance of any other buddy's problems with their health issues with their cattle.
1: You must save a lot of money on pharmaceutical bills.
2: Oh, Melinda, it's unbelievable. We, You know, back in the day when we weren't doing high-density mob grazing, we were not moving the cattle, we had sick cattle.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We had them in mud accidentally. We'd leave them too long. They'd get muddy spots. See, mud is the enemy of the animal. If you leave an animal in muddy areas, that breeds Disease. If you move animals on the grass every day, there is no disease. We don't even worm our animals anymore. They're not wormy.
1: Wow. So, why are we not using this mob grazing or holistic plan grazing system more extensively? Is it because we don't have enough grass?
2: The issue is there's not enough people out here that know about it, they're not educated. I'm doing my part. You know, I'm giving lots of grazing schools all the way across the United States. I'm trying to get the word out and show people that there is a better way to graze cattle, and you can do it profitably. Everybody says, oh, I want to be a rancher. We have this Western ideally, uh, idea of being a rancher. Everybody enjoys the lifestyle. Oh, I'm sorry. You should still be able to show a profit and enjoy what you're doing.
0: Right. It's There's a lot of work out here on the
2: farm, and, you know, we we still got to be able to show our profit to keep our family, our families healthy and, and the local economy healthy as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested to know the uh, genetically modified alfalfa, and I believe a kind of grass was just approved. Are you concerned at all about your pastures becoming contaminated?
2: I would be if I lived around a lot of people that did cropping.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I guess you might say I'm in a sweet spot. Well, I'm not here in the hills. Where it's not suitable to put a plough shear in the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have a lot of cropping around me. There's not any GMO crops around me. I see. Um, but I I feel for the people that are. I mean it's it's just a travesty is what they've done. They've crammed this GMO alfalfa down our throats whether they wanted it or not. And it's gonna cross it's gonna cross pollinate everything.
1: Yes, it will. And
2: you know, they big money speaks and that's that's what we got. I mean until the American consumers Stands up and says, It's enough. Right. I don't want this in my food. Right. I want a choice. I want to have healthy, fresh, safe food for my family and my kids. Mm-hmm. Until the consumer says, I'm going to eat with my dinner plate, with my buying, purchasing dollar. In other words, I refuse to buy meat that is laced with antibiotics, hormones, and GMOs.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm not
2: going to feed it to my kids.
1: Right. Well, you know, I was recently at the American Dietetic Association, and there was the Cattlemen's Association representative there. And it's my understanding that they do not promote one form of beef over another. Even though we know that grass-fed beef has a better nutritional composition in terms of protecting against heart disease, for example, the Cattlemen's Association does not have any recommendations to choose one over the other.
2: Well, they're, they're in their interest, they're not going to do that because, first of all, you know, we're a team. They, they, they push us as a team. In other words, why would one cattleman in his market want to knock down another cattleman in his market? And so they're using that a lot, you know, against the little guys. And there's a lot of people out there that know the truth, and they're, they're scared to say anything. Um, they're scared to speak up. Because there is a lot of there's a lot of power behind these people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it's going to be hard to change. Melinda, when you have a the billion dollar industry that we've got set up, where all these ruminant animals are fed all this corn, it's going to be a tough thing to change.
0: Mm-hmm. And well, the
2: only thing that's going to change it is the consumer. You know, Monsanto tried to ram labeled milk that had the the uh, hormone in it to make it illegal, where you couldn't say non-BST. Well, guess who changed that? Walmart. Walmart said, our customers aren't going to buy it, so therefore you stop right now. Monsanto had to stop it. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take that kind of movement from the consumer to change.
1: Okay, so you've got this delicious, nutritious, grass-fed beef, and you have, I'm assuming, a local processor? Yes. Okay. How difficult is it for you to get your beef into, say, a Kroger or one of the national chains? can't do it. Why?
2: We, we cannot do it. The uh, infrastructure is set up against the small farmer. There's no way that we can sell, unless we go to a USDA plant, and there's not enough USDA plants, small plants. that See, the USDA plants, they don't want to mess with the small farmer because, in other words, if we bring in four or five animals, you've got... Uh, let's say, a kill floor on the big guys, they're running, you know, maybe forty, fifty thousand 50,000 animals a day.
0: Oh and my.
2: so they can make a lot better usage of a USDA meat inspector on one of those plants than they can at a small-town plant where you've only got, let's say, a guy's butchering maybe 30, 40 animals a month
0: hmm. or,
2: you know, or a week or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it comes down to the meat inspectors. There's a great movie that's coming out. It's actually in Columbia this weekend. It's called Farmageddon. Yes. And Farmageddon, we have a good friend in there. He actually came to one of our grading schools and they've raided him twice now and tried to shut him down for selling raw milk. And, you know, the same way here, we don't have access to these markets because they don't want the little guy here selling meat. They'd rather have Tyson selling meat. Mm -hmm. There's just constant, all these meat recalls out here, so. I don't know, I think the little guy that is raising healthy grass-fed meat ought to have have less government interference and let him sell his meat.
1: If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Greg Judy, and he is a rancher. He raises cattle on grass, and that's what makes him so unique. He practices something called mob grazing or holistic planned grazing, and he is based in Rucker, Missouri. Greg, I hear you about regulations, but on the one hand, I feel like we need regulations to keep everyone honest and on track. On the other hand, it's been my understanding in speaking with farmers that what we really need are regulations that are size specific. So the regulation for a huge feedlot is different for the regulation for a small grass farmer. Right. And and that might make it you know, better for all people in all worlds. But I'm really concerned because we were talking about, okay, I know that I want to feed my family the highest quality beef I can, and that means it's going to come from a grass-fed animal. But unfortunately, you know, if people just have access anymore to maybe one grocery store, maybe two, and those chains can't get what I want, how do I get grass-fed beef? There's
2: one real good way... For everybody in the United States to find the closest processor to them. And there's a website. It's called eatwild.com.
1: Okay. And on
2: eatwild.com, it's run by Joe Robinson.
1: And there's
2: a list of uh, every grass fed producer in every state. And it has a phone number. It tells where they have, you know, like chickens, pork, lamb, beef. Listed on there, and there'll be a phone number, probably a website, and a contact number. And so, you know, eat local. Yes. That's what we're kind of promoting. In other words, my wife and I—we don't want to send meat to Washington D.C. or or to California. That's not using uh, fossil fuel very wisely. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to we need to sell our meat local, and that way we don't have all this fossil fuel wrapped up into de- into the delivery of the meat.
1: Right. Now let's talk about cost for a moment because the argument that we always hear from the beef industry is that, uh, well, you know, that's all well and good to have your local grass-based systems, but in places like Arizona or places like western Kansas where uh, you may not have the kind of rain and grass, lush grass that we do here, that they, what we're told is that the feedlot system is a more efficient system. How do you respond to that?
2: You go back and look at all the calories the fossil fuel calories that it takes to produce one feedlot steer
0: hmm.
2: it's really kind of scary it's you know there was a a really good article a couple of years ago in the uh national geographic that actually went back and calculated how many calories of fuel it took to raise one steer and it was unbelievable i, I forgot the number but it was several hundred gallons of diesel fuel for one feedlot steer I own one ATV that uses five gallons every two weeks.
0: <laughs> That's and wonderful. I don't
2: even own a tractor. My animals are my tractors. They move across the landscape. They harvest their food off the grass stem that it was grown on. I don't even have a hay baler. They 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 harvest their own standing hay in the field. And guess what? They also fertilize free for me. Yeah. And I don't have I don't have any trashy manure because they're constantly moving it across my landscape. Refertilizing the soil, there is no better natural system of raising good, healthy meat. And I say to the people that say, oh, grass-fed, you can't feed the world on that. Give me back all the land that's under row crop. Yeah. All that, all those chemicals that have created that 250-mile dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico from all the atrazine that's washed off these corn and bean fields, let's clean up our water, clean up the soil, clean up people's health, and start feeding them good meat from animals that are raised on grass. All that productive land in the United States, if we even had half of it under grass, it would be scary how much beef we could raise, healthy beef.
1: Mm-hmm. Are you able to get your meat into schools or hospitals or other institutions?
2: No. There was a guy in the St. Louis School District. That was, he was trying to get in the St. Louis School District, and with the latest recession, the school came back and said they didn't have enough money to feed their kids healthy meat.
1: Mm, I guess we'll pay in the long run, right? Yeah. You can pay now for good quality preventive medicine, or you can pay for heart disease and diabetes and obesity down the road. Exactly. That's a real shame, Greg, because it to me it seems that, especially in our schools where we're trying to keep our children well and in hospitals where we're trying to get people to be well, that there should be some sort of system set up where, a food service manager could order directly from you. What is? Is it mostly the cost that gets in the way?
2: Yeah, the cost and the, the bureaucracy. You know, the, there's in other words, the schools have this truck that backs up to the door, and it's all boxed. All you got to do is heat it up. It's this pale, nasty food that doesn't have any nutrients in it. We're feeding our kids trash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, macaroni and cheese, you know, you know, hamburger helper, whatever that is, you know, all this stuff. There's no real food in our school systems anymore.
1: What would we have to fix from a policy level to get your meat, or meat like yours, into institutions?
2: First of all, the, the school would have to have the phones available buy the meat and buck the traditional school lunch program, in other words, there's going to be
0: people screaming because, you know, school lunches are a big deal. There's yeah. no money
2: involved in that. Yeah. And it's going to take uh, somebody at the local level, a group of, of parents that just say enough is enough and we're going to start feeding our, our kids healthy food. And this is what's going to happen. These are the steps it's going to take. And so it's going to have to start with the parents.
1: You know what I don't understand? I don't understand how you can run an operation locally, cut way back on fossil fuel inputs. You've got no chemical inputs whatsoever. How is it that your meat is more expensive than the meat that is traveling hundreds of miles from a feedlot using a crop feeding system where you've got chemical inputs, fossil fuel inputs? Where does this imbalance come from?
2: There's two issues here, Melinda. One, when you're talking grass finished meat, now there's two terms. Some people sell grass fed meat, and some people call are selling grass finished. The difference between the two, grass fed could be any animal. In other words, that animal ate grass in its lifetime. Right. They don't tell you that the last 160 days the animal alive that they fed it a full diet of corn.
0: Right. They're
2: still calling that a grass-fed beef. It's not a grass-fed beef. It's it's, Well, you can call it a grass-fed beef, but it's not a grass-finished. Grass-finished means that's all the animal's ever eaten in its entire life is grass. And so when you do that, you are backing the production system up a little bit because it takes longer to finish an animal on grass, 100%. I see. So you have a longer time frame... And the genetics are not there, Melinda. We're still working on genetics. We've got the right genetics, and they're out there. It's just that most people are using a commodity. Most people that are selling grass-finished beef are using the commodity genetics. In other words, Mm. the bigger-framed animals that the feedlots love. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: See, the feedlots want a great, big, tall, lanky animal with a lot of leg on it because they can feed it tons of corn. Mm -hmm. The feedlots are in the corn-selling business. That's what they want to do is sell lots of corn. So they don't want an animal that has short legs and a big belly on it. That animal will get fat too quick. They don't want that. They want the slender, tall, framing animals that eat a lot of corn.
1: You know, it's interesting that you brought up that term grass-finished versus grass-fed because I want to give you a personal example, and I know consumers all over the country are facing this very same issue. Go to the farmer's market. You think, oh, great, you know, the farmer's market. I want to support my local farmer. And they'll say, yes, I have grass fed beef, and then you ask, this is a question that consumers have to ask, what else did your cattle eat? And lo and behold, you find out that they're having some sort of grain ingredient. So one gentleman told me that he fed their cattle a high-protein supplement, and then when I pushed that question, you know, what's in that exactly? And then it turned out to be a corn byproduct. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes. There's a lot of people doing that, and that's because it's cheap. This dried distiller's grain, which is a byproduct of uh, the, in- the ethanol industry, it's readily available out there, and you know they got tractor trailers to this stuff, and they're trying to unload it. And so people say, well, that's not corn. That's a byproduct of corn.
0: Uh-huh. And so they're
2: feeling like they can feed that and still call it grass-fed beef. It's not grass-fed beef. It still has the corn in it it still has a, GM, you know, you are getting the GMOs through there. Right. And to me, that's cheating almost, and I'd I hate to see that, but people do that just because they don't have the management or they don't have the grass or they don't have the inclination or the time that it takes to make a truly grass-fed product.
1: Mm-hmm. We have a few minutes left, and I feel like I need to give you an opportunity to talk about issues that I may not have brought up that you want our listeners to know about.
2: Well, one is, you know, the subsidies, you talked about what's got to change. I think if we remove the subsidies from ethanol where they weren't getting that 50 cents a gallon for every gallon of ethanol that's produced in the United States, they get a 50-cent subsidy from our tax dollar. That's not right.
1: No, it's not.
2: The other thing is, why not reward ranchers that are producing a healthy product,
1: healing the land, give them an
2: incentive... They should get a good stewardship award or some kind of incentive to do things right instead of giving money to the people that are destroying our topsoil and calling these guys landmark farmers. Mm-hmm. So there's there, there's none of that in place. I think there should be uh, something from the universities. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't we have these universities have some uh, research uh, out there showing young people from the ground up that there is a different way to ranch. We don't have to do the feedlot system to feed America and the world. And so we need to get that kind of, I think we need some inroads from the university side as well. And there's some out there that are starting to do a little bit of it, but there could be a lot more. You know, young minds, that's, that's the future. We need to get more young people on the land. The average age of the American cattleman now is sixty-six or sixty-eight years old,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's because the young people don't want to come back to the land. They saw how hard their their parents worked, and still lost the farm or, or didn't make any money, so they don't want any part of that. With grass fed beef and the mob grazing, there is a future. We can lower our inputs. We can make a nice living at the same time provide provide our local economy with a healthy product, and the consumer should feel good about eating meat again. In other words, he's healing the land with every mouthful that he
0: takes. Mm-hmm.
2: And if the if consumers will start researching where their meat comes from, we can really get this thing turned around.
1: Well, I'm Greg, excited about that. Well, Greg, I think you mentioned a very good point, and that was the subsidies, which are incentives to farmers to plant corn. Exactly. So let's send a charge out to our listeners to talk to our legislators about not subsidizing corn-based ethanol. Would you agree?
2: Exactly.
1: Okay. Well, and I also want to let our listeners know that you offer internships to young future farmers and ranchers on your land. Is that right?
2: That is correct. We have a full-time internship program now where we're teaching young people the future. You know, they've got to have a. There's no universities teaching how to be a good holistic mob grazer. And so we're doing that, and we're taking young men. uh, The two we have right now are actually both have their uh, their, uh, master's degree, and they want some real-life experience now.
1: Well, that's terrific. I want to, we're going to have to close, but you have given us so much food for thought. And I want to direct our listeners to www.greenpasturesfarm.net for more information about Greg and Jan Judy's wonderful, life-giving farm in Rucker, Missouri. And I want to close by thanking our listeners for joining us thanking Greg Judy for being my guest and to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Greg, thank you so much for spending time with me today.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you for, for ranching the way you are.
2: Thank you so much.